Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 to 24. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says, By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, the river will stink, the Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and stone jars. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelt so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water, because they could not drink the water of the river. I read an article in a discarded copy of the Metro this week on the train. Uh, The article was by a lady called Zoe Folbig. I'm not sure any of you will have heard of her. Uh, So Zoe is a young journalist, and she was writing an article about a story of something that happened to her when she fell in love with a stranger on the commute. She tells the story that after six months of her friends driving her crazy, uh, because she was basically she was driving her friends crazy with her increasingly obsessive accounts of this man that she only described as train man. Uh, they, they said, you've got to do something about this. You can't, you're driving us all bonkers. We need to, to do something or get over it. So this, this man that she only knew as train guy, she finally summoned up the courage to give him a note, to pass him a note on the train. That took her six months to get to the point where she had the courage to pass the note to train guy. Um, and she left her email address on the note and suggested they went out for a drink. And she had a reply, a very nice, a very polite reply from train guy saying that he was already with someone, but it was very brave nevertheless. So another year went by when Zoe basically learned to cope with the awkward occurrences of still seeing train guy fairly regularly on her daily commute and trying to get over her embarrassment, but she didn't really manage to get over him. 
And then out of the blue, he emailed her again to say that he was now single and was now uh, willing to take her up on the invitation to go out for the drink. So more than 18 months since she'd first seen the stranger on the train, they have their first real meeting and actually begin to get to know each other. Um, and as you would guess by the fact that I was reading an article about it in the Metro, um, they're now happily married. It had a, you know, a happy ending. They have two sons, and the canny Zoe, the journalist and very talented PR person, is now writing articles to publish her new book that she's written on the subject. So if any of you want to go and read a book about how to, to pick up a, a guy on a train, that's the one for you. Um, But I was wondering about this, and I was wondering whether it's really possible to genuinely fall in love with a distant stranger, someone you don't really know but only imagine. And I was wondering about what was going on in Zoe's brain over this 18-month period of just sort of glimpsing him from afar. And for me, it started to feel a little bit like weird stalking, to be honest. But she sort of describes in this article how she sort of built up an impression of this poor train guy from their encounters on the daily commute. So perhaps she pieces together an impression of him based on the books that she's seen him reading or the shopping that he'd bought. She might have heard his voice, perhaps, if he took a phone call while he was on the train. I kind of get the feeling she would have been interested in the kind of snacks that he was eating on the train, all these kind of things. Uh, Really quite intent on trying to find out more about him. And it struck me what an inadequate way (laughs) to get to know somebody this was. It's nothing compared to the personal relationship. And so we come to our journey in Exodus. Since the early intimacy of the garden, when God and Adam walked side by side, this relationship was was lost. God's people only had been really aware of him from afar. They knew him as the God of their ancestors. They knew him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in Exodus, we follow the story of the extended family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the sons of Israel who'd been enslaved in Egypt. In Exodus 3, we've heard about the encounter in the burning bush, where Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? This tells me, they didn't really know God yet. They'd sort of glimpsed in from afar. They'd heard the rumors from their forefathers. But Moses says, I'm here talking to you, and I don't even really know your name yet. And God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you say to the Israelites. I am has sent me. And this is a step change in the nature of relationships. Now the Israelites know the name Of the Lord. And God says to them, This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. So Exodus is a story of God's people getting to know him. And it's more than that. It's the story of the fame of God and the reputation of his people spreading far and wide. When Moses first approaches Pharaoh and asks him to let the people go, Pharaoh replies, Who is this Lord? that I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. The series of events that unfolds between that first meeting between Pharaoh and Moses and the eventual release 
of God's people. We can take it as an introduction of God to Pharaoh. And it is a very eloquent answer to the question, who is the Lord? And then many people struggle with the God of the Old Testament. And often it is these kind of accounts that cause these struggles. Some people feel that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New are completely different characters. And I'm sure many of you know intellectually and theologically that that's not right. But maybe some little bit of you still feels a bit of a disconnect, a struggle to reconcile the image of this wrathful, warmongering Old Testament God with the gentle Jesus that we believe is portrayed in the New Testament. Yet we know this is the same God, a God who says he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I would suggest that if you genuinely believe Jesus is all meek and mild, we might need to review some gospel stories together. Maybe if we think the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is all about senseless destruction, perhaps it's time to take a closer look. There's a couple of things I think we've learned already about the character of God through our Exodus story. He is a God who can be known. Who is this God? Says Pharaoh, and he gets an answer. Moses says, Who shall I say sent me? And he gets an answer. This is a God who can be known and a God who wants to be known and who is available to reveal himself to us. And this is a God who listens and a God who responds. He hears the cry of his people Israel. And what we are reading this evening is the response to that. It's the beginning of putting in motion the response to the cry of the people that he's heard. But also he hears the indignant question of the Pharaoh, and he answers that as well. He is a God who listens and a God who responds. So the passage that Tim read for us this evening is only the beginning of of quite a long section, actually, that was appointed for this evening. Um, So there are 10 plagues in total, and this evening we've been asked to consider the first four of those. So it, it felt quite a lot to have read, but I don't want to cheat. So what I'm going to suggest you do is you open your Bibles, and we can look at it together. So if you have a Bible, and you hadn't already opened it when we read it, we need to go back to Exodus chapter 7. If you're using the Pew Bibles, it's on page 64 and 65. And we'll have a little whiz through the other things that are going on, and then you can check what I'm telling you, make sure I'm not making it up as I go along. <clears throat> so we read in the, in the, in the uh, church Bibles, uh, Tim read to us the section that's entitled The Plague of Blood, which is the first of the plagues when the, the water in the Nile is uh, changed into blood. And our reading this evening could have gone as far as chapter 8, verse 32, which takes you all the way to the end of page 65. And if you just look at the headings, it takes us through the plague of frogs and the plague of gnats and the plague of flies. So just keep that open and we'll have a little look at some of those as we go through. Now, a lot has been written. Many, many words have been spoken about the Exodus story uh, in general and about the plagues in particular. And I think they they tend to fall into two camps, really. On the one camp, there's a very oversimplified narrative sweep. And on the other, there's a sort of painstakingly detailed 
explanation. And I have to say, in, in preparing for this evening, I've encountered both. In the simplified narrative, you get this problem because you skip happily from a baby in a basket to a burning bush, a quick whiz through a few plagues, and then a triumphant escape through a parted sea. And it can seem disarmingly straightforward. And it somehow seems to gloss over the distress (laughs) and the terror and the power, frankly. And also is a little bit vague on purpose and message. Um, I don't want to call it the Sunday school version because that does a great disservice to many of our wonderful Sunday school teachers. Uh, But I know my daughter Amy, who sat in the front row this evening, has been a little bit frustrated by this exact treatment of Exodus in her recent RE lessons. She struggled. I think she was given 10 minutes to do a cartoon strip of the story of Exodus, and bless her, she was still on page two when Miriam was... Um, sort of down by the, the waterside with the princess, and the teacher was a bit concerned why she hadn't quite finished yet, because I think Amy was trying to do a verse-by-verse verse, um, interpretation, and the RE teacher was very much in the quick whiz-through narrative sweep at school of Exodus. However, the painstakingly detailed exploration that often, I've, I haven't really read very many of these, but there's plenty of them out there, many, many intricate descriptions of Egyptian gods in all their detail and how each individual plague can be interpreted as a direct challenge to each of them in turn, which is deeply fascinating, I have to say. There are also scientific explanations that unpick the detail of each event an attempt to match the meteorological and archaeological records of the time. Some of these claim that this proves categorically that what the Bible says to be true because we have the scientific evidence that backs it up. And there's a whole other school that says there's a perfectly natural explanation for all of these things that deny the existence of God. And while the simple skip through is unsatisfying, the detailed unpicking rather left me feeling like I couldn't really see the wood for the trees. So I was delighted to come across uh, a blog series by uh, a guy called Peter Kroll, who seems to steer an elegant middle way and help me see some really useful things in this. Um, So I am unashamedly stealing much of what follows from him. He uses the analogy of a boxing match. We might feel that we know this story and we know the characters, but let's take a fresh look at some of the contenders. So in one corner, there's Pharaoh the king of Egypt, the all-powerful ruler of the richest and most advanced nation in the ancient world, with him a collection of clever advisors and powerful magicians. The variety and the power of the Egyptian gods was legendary, gods for most occasions and situations and locations. Pharaoh represents the wealth and the prestige of the whole of Egypt, and he's clearly way, way out of the league of a tribe of wandering farmers. So in the other corner, there were just two representatives from this tribe of wandering farmers. Men in their 80s, armed with a staff. And who else is in their corner? Well, no one, as far as we can see, although there was a rumour of some god. He was last seen up a mountainside. We covered the fact that Moses was nervous, unsure of his ability to speak or stand in front of Pharaoh. His first encounter hadn't gone that well and provoked much anger from his own people, so he didn't really even have the backing of his people at this point. As he stood there, I expect he felt very alone and very isolated and very vulnerable. 
Now, we know how this story goes. This is the classic David and Goliath story, isn't it? This is the classic God is on the side of the little guy story. I'm sure we could all reel off the names of all the unlikely candidates that God plucks from obscurity and uses in triumphant glory. But Moses and Aaron were the first. They were several generations ahead of David. They hadn't seen this movie yet. So God speaks to Moses in the burning bush, but this is still the beginning of the journey of discovery. They're still getting to know God. They're still getting to know that when he's in your corner, you're assured of victory. So let's get back to these plagues. So stealing, as I say, from the work of Peter Kroll, he suggests that rather than looking at 10 plagues in detail or sweeping over them entirely, there's another way of looking at them. And he suggests that actually they're in rounds. They come in little sets of three. And this is why I want you to look at the text and check I'm not making this up. So in the bit that we've looked at today, in verse 715, chapter 7, verse 15, the plague of blood, Moses goes to Pharaoh early in the morning. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is the frogs. In chapter 8, verse 1, he just goes to Pharaoh. It's not so early. It's just a, just a sort of any time in the day he goes to Pharaoh. And in the third of the plagues, in uh, chapter 8, verse 16, there's no going to Pharaoh involved. Aaron just stretches out his staff. It's just an action. So this little pattern goes to Pharaoh early in the morning, goes to Pharaoh just does a thing, is repeated three times. If you look through the plagues that follow, the little cycle gets repeated. So the the plagues that follow, the flies come after Moses goes to Pharaoh early in the morning, the livestock get killed just after he goes to Pharaoh, and the boils come after an action. And getting further ahead of ourselves still and stealing the glory a little bit from whoever's preaching next week... Hail happens after Moses goes to Pharaoh early in the morning. The locusts happen after he goes to Pharaoh at any random time in the day. And the darkness happens when Moses stretches out his hands. Now, we know from the way the Hebrew writing works that these things are there for a reason. So we've got, we've got three sets of three. It's as if there are three rounds with the all-powerful Pharaoh in one corner and two old men in the other. And at the end of each round, Pharaoh has lost a little more ground to the old guys. In round one, the first three plagues, the Pharaoh's magicians are able to match what Moses, done, uh, what Moses does. They're able to turn the Nile um, into blood, and they're able to make frogs come out of the ground, just as Moses did. However, as the bell rings for the end of round one, in chapter 8, verse 18 we see that the magicians are unable to produce gnats by their secret arts. And further, they recognize this is the finger of God. So Pharaoh's heart remains hard, but the magicians, at least, have an answer to the question, who is this God? That's the end of round one. What does round one teach us about the character of God? That he is a God who judges and punishes those who oppose his will. That's pretty clear. This is punishment for what Pharaoh and the Egyptians have done to the people of Israel. It's also quite clear that the purpose of the punishment is to spur repentance. And a compliance 
In this first round, the plagues are taken away when Pharaoh promises to release the people. This is a series of broken promises, but it's as if they're given a chance every time. If you don't do this, then this will happen. And well, now we see, and now we're going to uh, change our ways. But Pharaoh fails to honour his promises and let the people go. So we move on to round two. In the next three plagues, in the next of this little cycle, the early in the morning, the some random time, the some action, the thing that sets these three plagues apart is the fact that they only affect the Egyptians. In chapter 8, verse 21, the house of the Egyptians will be full of flies, even on the ground will be covered with them, but on that day I will, do, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen. In chapter 9, verse 4, the livestock, the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt. And the final plague in this round is the boils that afflicts the Egyptians so badly that round three ends with the magicians unable to stand in the presence of Moses and Aaron. And at the end of round two, Pharaoh's heart might still be hardened, but he's considerably weakened. His magicians are rendered useless. And the Egyptian people are now in no doubt that they have an answer to the question, who is this God? This is not some generic God. This is I am. This is a personal God, the God who can be known. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they can see this because this God has made a distinction between the Egyptians and his own people. The Egyptians are starting to count the cost and feel the punishment for enslaving this tribe of wandering farmers. And this is a lesson that echoes through generations. In 1 Samuel, we read that the Philistines still remembered the plagues and feared the God of the Israelites. And we learn something else critical about the character of God. He is a God who divides. He separates the people who are for him from those who stand against him. He deals differently with the tribe of wandering farmers to whom he has revealed his name to their slave masters. And here is a consistent fact across the Old and New Testament. We know God as a God who separates and divides, who calls out and who sets apart. We know the God of David who separates the wheat and the chaff. And we remember the stories of Jesus when he talked about the separation of the sheep and the goats. We know that Jesus gives us the chance to respond to him and be known as his, or to reject him and remain separated. The final two rounds of this epic fight, round three and four, are in the following chapters that we're going to be considering together in future weeks. The next three plagues reveal the full extent of the might and power of God. There's an escalation and destruction brought about by hail and locusts and enveloping darkness. And the last plague, according to um, uh, Peter Cole, is different in structure and in presentation. And he takes this as the fourth round the Passover, the final prelude to the release of the people of Israel. I hope it's not too much of a spoiler to tell you that in the coming chapters, we will see a God who has complete power and control over all things. And we will see a God who rescues and who saves. And we will see in the desert years, he reveals himself as a God who leads and who guides and who sustains. Every step, God is building a relationship with his people and revealing more and more of himself to them. Just like that date on the train. 
The relationship that began with seeing a stranger from afar and then moved on to an exchange of names develops into something deeper and more meaningful with every shared experience until a marriage blossoms that consists of sharing a life together. Tim talked this morning about following Jesus and the need to make this a daily investment in a relationship. So wherever you are today in that relationship, whether you haven't yet taken the first step, whether you've just made a commitment and know nothing other than his name, or whether you've been walking alongside him for years, God is here. Here is a God who can be known and wants to be known and will make himself known to you. Here is a God who listens and responds. He is a safe place to pour out all your fears and hopes and dreams. Here is a God who judges and punishes. But thankfully, this is not something we need to take responsibility for ourselves. For those who do evil or oppress or abuse will be held accountable. Here is a God who longs for us to repent and who is always ready to forgive and keen to turn back punishment that we might deserve. Here is a God who divides, who calls us out of darkness into light, and who wants us to be different and set apart. Here is a God who has all the power and resources in the world he created under his command. Here is a God who rescues and saves even from death, by the power of sacrifice that he himself provides. And here is a God who guides and sustains, who has plans and purposes for us that he will reveal if only we would ask him and would listen. And he has resources to equip us for the tasks that he sets before us. It's sometimes hard to discern the purpose of God in the struggles and the tough times of life. I'm not at all sure that the Israelites would make much sense of the plagues or the escape of the desert. But they would have known that God was with them, that he called them, that he rescued them, and that he had a purpose for them. One of the things that I've been considering and been challenged by recently is this idea that we often say, God be with you, a bit of a platitude when we're not quite sure what we should say to comfort somebody. And God's been challenging me recently to understand that this is not a platitude, it is a powerful statement. To know God, to be known by him, and to know that he is with you. To know that you've been called and rescued and that God has purpose is an awesome thing. The presence of God is sufficient. So if the God of the Old Testament seems distant and scary to you, I would encourage you, meet with Jesus tonight and ask him to introduce him introduce you to his father. Here is Jesus. He stands at the door tonight and he knocks and he says, if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Amen.